You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, in your social studies class, you probably talk about immigration quite a bit, right? Yeah, we do, because it fits into our US-1 and US-2 classes, because obviously, you know, we are kind of, you know, this nation of immigrants. It's interesting when you think of, like, the Statue of Liberty, which was given to us in 1876. You know, it was supposed to celebrate the friendship between the US and France, but it's interesting how that symbol has just evolved into being, you know, a welcoming for immigrants. Right, right. And we, we point to that, but we often point to it also in, as it's a symbol that stands against some of the hypocrisy that often exists, right? Because throughout American history, there have been xenophobic and anti-immigrant movements and feelings. And a lot of those things, I think, continue to the present. I know when I talk to my students, developing like a conceptualization, not just of immigration in the past, but in the present, it was always really important in my social studies classes because I know the term melting pot gets thrown around a lot. And I've never been a big fan of that term because it indicates assimilation for everyone. Like everyone comes to the U.S. assimilates, which usually means assimilating into like kind of white mainstream culture, um, losing your language, losing who you are. Um, I really like the salad bowl analogy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I've heard that. So we're all, you know, it's kind of the e pluribus unum out of many one. What do you think? I mean, do you think that we do a good job of addressing that today and historically? on how we work with immigrant populations. I would say not really. It seems like, like you're saying, there, there's always a pushback on about immigration. And I feel like as a society, we need to figure out a way to, to do it better. Well, so luckily today we have a great guest who's going to help talk a little bit about some of the research and things that she's done in this area. And so this is one of my colleagues who's taught me a lot on these issues and many issues. And so welcome to the podcast, Mandy Stewart. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you, Mandy. Mandy, can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background in education? Yeah, I got into education as a sixth grade teacher at a special school that was for newcomer immigrant youth. So this was a school that secondary students would come to for their very first school in the United States. And uh, we serve students in middle and high school. So through that experience, I really just fell in love with these students. I learned a lot from them. I realized that they had so much to teach me. And I kept going with that as I went into higher education and began um, researching these students in their high school classes, trying to understand better what their literacies are and their lived experiences so we can really leverage that in education. It's interesting. I was listening to something on NPR the other day, and this, I forget which business it was, but they're talking about how the immigrant population is a, is a group of people that they really like to hire not just for diversity, but because of their experiences. If you become an immigrant coming to the U.S., you've done a lot of work to do that. And so it's just this different, you know, diversity of experience that they are very welcoming into their their organization. 
Yeah, a lot of times we talk about the triggers of immigration and what are the reasons why people come. And usually because of these reasons, these students tend to really appreciate the education they have here, the opportunities they have, and what will usually become their new country. They appreciate our democracy and really want to work hard and are willing to sacrifice for success in their new country. So, Mandy, you are working in in teacher education now, but you do still spend a lot of time in the schools, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what you're you're doing? Yeah, since 2012, I've been able to go back into high school classrooms, either English as a second language or English language arts classrooms, and work with these students and their teachers. I've worked with students, some who have lived in the United States for a long time, others who are extremely new to the country. And what they all have in common is that they are immigrants or refugees, and they are in the dynamic process of learning English and adding that to their linguistic repertoire. Can you tell us about um, educating refugee and immigrant youth? So I think the big difference I see is how we choose to see these young people. Do we see them for all of their strengths and their assets, or do we view them through a deficit lens? So I think when we purposefully decide to see them for the strengths they have, that can not only change their education and their chances for success in this country, but it can also enrich the entire school. So there are a lot of uh, strengths that I think are very unique in immigrant youth that I see and I try to help teachers bring into their curriculum. And the first of those are their, their many languages. They already have at least one language, sometimes many other languages, and are in the process of learning English. So I think we need to see that first language as an asset and understand how we can leverage that more. I know one thing you taught me, Mandy, which really shifted the way I thought about taking a kind of an asset approach to um, language in our classrooms is to prefer the term emergent bilingual or emergent trilingual, or I don't know what the four languages is, Um, (laughs) but emergent bilingual as opposed to saying, you know, English language learner, because English language learner only talks about like what they are aspire, what they're working on gaining, and doesn't really value their their first language. Right. Of course, these students need to learn English, the language of power in our society, but they already have language. Many of them are already highly literate in that language and possess not just academic skills, but social skills in that language. So they are bilingual or trilingual, polylingual, and we need to see that and leverage that in our classrooms. And with that comes their language brokering. Often, especially adolescent immigrants, are the ones in their families that train translate or do the language brokering on a regular basis. So they start developing skills that we really need in our society today, but are very rare in the mainstream population. When you say language brokering, what do you mean by that? Basically, uh, translating or helping someone go back and forth between two different language systems. A lot of the youth I work with will do that for their parents in the grocery store. They'll do it for their parents' lawyers and uh, with physicians. They do it at school, even for parent-teacher conferences. And they are the ones that our society depends on. And then we reap the economic benefits of their language brokering. A lot of business would not happen if it weren't for these youth. Can I ask you kind of a, if I could ask you a practical question for Those of us in teaching that are monolingual speakers, I think sometimes it can be a little intimidating to figure out how we can be, you know, affirmational about 
languages we don't speak in our classes. What are some approaches or ways you could say for if you get a student who speaks a language you're not familiar with or don't have a lot of experience and how a teacher could affirm their language and bring it into their classroom? First, you need to know what languages your students speak. Be very aware of that and make no assumptions. Then to know what their abilities are in that language. Do they have formal education in it? Do they use it for religious purposes, etc.? And I think every single teacher can at least learn how to greet a student in her language. I do not speak all the languages of the students I've worked with, but you can learn how to greet them. And then as the, the year goes on, you can purposefully learn more and more. I think also having assignments where they get to use all of their languages and it's seen as a benefit in the school as it is in a society is a bonus. So that could be writing in both languages, interviewing in both languages within the classroom because they're not just multilingual, they're also transnational. If you're studying something, they can go online and get information from a different perspective, a different language and different country than usually the teacher and the other students can. So using them as that great resource. Michael, I know in a previous episode you had talked about um, in being a culturally responsive teacher that one thing you wanted you to do is learn more about your students. And you talked about learning about your students through under, knowing what kind of music they like. And so I've been thinking about having surveys in the beginning of my courses. One thing, Mandy, I'll, I'll do as our semester starts is I might just add those questions about their languages to, to the survey. So that's another way that I can kind of get to know them. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And even with music, you can understand what languages they speak and often immigrant students will listen to music in languages they're not even familiar with. They're just so transnational and um, global already. They're cosmopolitan intellectuals. They have this global perspective that is very rare in students who are mononational Americans. That's interesting. So when I did that, I had um, I actually made the Spotify playlist of the music, and then we would listen to it sometimes, like when they were doing work. Um, so that would be really interesting to totally get uh, have the other students have all students listen to the, to the different songs. And I think mm -hmm. just even having the presence of those languages in your class, whether it's through music or whether you're able to work in some phrases or greetings and other things that regularly are part of those class, what it shows is I care about that language. Even if I don't speak it a lot, I'm, I kind of value it. And, and I guess that's just at least a good first step to you know showing those students that your language is welcome here. And you are too, I guess, because it's tied to identity. So what other components, in addition to language, do immigrant and refugee students, what other supports do they need to be able to su succeed when they get to school? Before supports, like we need to look at all of the assets and strengths they have and then tie that into supports. So I think in addition to all of their language strengths, their transnationalism and global perspectives, these students usually have a tremendous desire to learn. Of course, they want to learn English, and they're often willing to do so much outside of class to acquire their language skills. Many of these students have not had the same opportunities we have here in the United States to have um, the same education that, that we have. So they are so thankful to be here. They're thankful to be in school all, all day. They're thankful to have books available to them. So they have a tremendous desire to learn that can really um, have a good influence on other students in the class. 
Another thing that I see that is unique in immigrant students is their character. There's a, a word in Spanish that has a particular meaning from a Mexican context, and that's educación. So meaning that the word for education really has a different meaning than the way we use it in English. It embodies character, one's um, commitment to a community and family, and just how they behave themselves overall. And I really see that in the immigrant students I work with. They have this great character and so much respect for adults, so much respect for their teachers and others that I think that can really be leveraged in the school. And then one of the last things that I see in immigrant youth that is different than the, the mainstream youth that I work with is their total commitment to a community. And I think we could leverage that to make them the ideal citizen. They will sacrifice themselves and their individualism to help others in that class whether it's helping with their schoolwork, helping their family, helping their teacher or others in the school, but they are so committed to others. So I just wanna make sure we know all of their assets and their strengths that are unique before we think we, of the things we need to help them with. Even though there are certainly unique needs they have, I just always wanna address all of their strengths that can meet my needs and my incompetence before we talk about the needs that they have. So you're saying that actually knowing the students well in our classes will help us to educate them and learn from them. Yes, and I say our first job is to learn from and with them. So especially when working with immigrant youth, I am a learner. I might be the lead learner in the classroom, modeling all of the tools, the literacy tools I use to learn, but I am learning from them and I'm learning with them because their life experiences are so rich, so different than mine, and I think I have so much to learn from them. Are there types of supports that they need in schools or types of services or things that teachers can be aware to make sure they receive as they transition from uh, one culture or country to the U.S.? Yeah, I think first, as we we get to know our students and we take that asset perspective and seeing everything they have, we can more easily address their needs. The first and most obvious one for many immigrant and refugee youth is English. They do need to learn English and we can best help them develop their second language skills if we know them. We can best help them develop English skills if we use their first language in our classroom. So I know in Massachusetts in 2002, there was a ballot initiative for an English-only education, which... It passed. It did. It passed in 2002. And then there was a lawsuit, a Justice Department lawsuit, talking about how the, the Massachusetts was not helping students learn English. And so as a result, every teacher has to take a shelter immersion. It's called SEI, a shelter immersion. Those type of English-only um, ballot initiatives, are they, like, is there, are they helpful at all? They're extremely destructive to our students, not just the immigrant refugee population, to the mainstream population. And I think that's why we're, we see research now that totally shows that just how backwards that thinking is. And it's not true. And we're going to see more change. This past November 7th in California, they overturned an uh, anti-bilingual education act. So November 7th, the Multilingual Education Act passed in California, Proposition, uh, Proposition 58. So I think um, we will see more initiatives for bilingual education, or at least an education that uses students' full linguistic repertoires. 
I realize at the secondary level with the youth I work with, it's it's sometimes difficult to think how can we provide a bilingual or dual language education for all 30 languages represented in the school. So I really look at how can the teacher who doesn't speak these students' languages still see their first language abilities and use them for academic success? What are some strategies that teachers can use to do that, uh, especially, again, those who don't speak the language? I think it's important that students have the ability to continue to develop that language. If they already have a formal education background in their language, they can do basic reading and writing in that language. They need to continue to read and write in their language. So providing them that literature, even if it's hard to find, using the internet and making sure that they have those opportunities to read in their language. If they speak a language that we can offer world language classes in, such as Spanish or French, maybe Japanese and Chinese, in some schools, Arabic, we need to make sure they are in those classes. They are the leaders of those classes, and we are continually helping them develop those language skills that they don't stay stagnant. But then there's a special population of immigrant and refugee youth, and this is particularly true of refugees. And these are students with limited or interrupted formal education. You can imagine if you grow up in a war zone or you've traveled um, to different countries and lived in a refugee camp for a long time, that getting that um, official formal education might not have been your family's first priority. Maybe survival has been the priority. So I think with these students, we just have to be really careful in how we um, initially bring them into the school. Sometimes they receive the label pre-literate, which I don't really like. I think it takes a, a deficit stance toward them. Sometimes we might assume these students have a learning disability or intellectual disability, and it just might be because they haven't had the chance to learn. So I think we need to be very careful. We need to work with the students' families and other members of that cultural and linguistic community to understand what their background is and to make sure we provide the services we need to help that individual student. Even though we don't do it in a lot of middle school and high schools, I think we could give students world language credit for studying their own language, such as Burmese, even if we can't offer that class. You just need a teacher who is skilled in second language acquisition and is a little savvy on the internet to find um, the right websites to use with that student to buy the right literature. And we can help a student become more literate and develop their skills in their first language, even if we don't speak them. I was working with a young woman from Uganda who came to the U.S. when she was 14, and she had never had the ability to read and write in her language. I don't speak Luganda, the language, but I was able to purchase books and help her begin to develop the skills. Mandy, I hope you'd be a little proud of me. Um, I was on my flight out to Orlando for um, a social studies conference retreat um, this last weekend, and a woman next to me was sharing her political beliefs and ideas about education with me without me prompting. Uh, and so, and she was, she, one of the things she brought up was English only education. And so I tried, honestly, cause I, um, you've taught me a lot and I tried to use a lot of the things you've taught me to convince her. Cause I think for some reason in her mind, she'd simplified it down to the reason she wanted English only was because she thinks it's important for people to speak English. And I don't think which it that, is, which it is. And so mm -hmm. I was able to agree with her on that, but then point out that the best way there is to also speak your first language and that continuing to develop that language actually helps you develop your language and literacy skills 
in English also. And she Absolutely. Kind of, yeah, she was kind of able to nod a little bit and get where I was coming from. And I'm hoping that that you know, argument can, can help people understand it because too many people, I think, see the first language as something negative, like you've said, and don't see it as something positive that also help you develop the English skills that will help students succeed too. People care about is the economy. We lose money every year because of the linguistic incompetence of our economy and the economy of the UK and other um, English speaking nations. We need businesses with multilingual workers there who speak Arabic fluently, who speak Spanish fluently. I learned Spanish as a second language, but when I work with youth who come here from El Salvador and Guatemala, Colombia, Mexico, their Spanish is better than mine will ever be. They are an asset to our economy. We need people who speak these languages in our military. We need to have cultural and linguistic insiders with to work with countries who are our allies as well as our adversaries. So just for dip, diplomacy, we need people who speak those languages. So I often ask people, what is better, monolingualism or multilingualism? So I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. What is better, monoculturalism or multiculturalism? So right. these students are, are a huge asset for that. There's a great post I read that I'll have to find and share in our show notes. And I think I shared it with you or maybe you shared it with me that was a kind of satirical post that talked about the crisis of monolingualism in the U.S. Because, But in a sense, I, it doesn't have to be satirical at all. It is in some ways kind of a crisis, but we always talk about it on the other end as if multilingualism and multiculturalism is the crisis, which I think that shit, we really have to shift that perspective just from an educational point of view. But one last thing I'll say I want to point out too that is Lau versus Nichols. You have to teach other languages. You can't, if a student comes in, right, um, the courts have already said, like, you can't just teach English. Lavers Nichols just says that we have to give someone a meaningful education in English. We have to make give them the support to learn English. You don't necessarily need to teach in another language. But we know that the best we can give students are their other language. If I were to start learning Chinese today and you forbid me from reading or writing or hearing anything in English, it would be like putting a straitjacket on me to learn Chinese. The best resource I have to learn Chinese are my well-developed English skills. Interesting. Oh, I did. Um, it's Oliver Wyman, which is one of the Fortune 500 companies that's actually started to hire refugees because of their, their experience in, in coming over. Um, and that seems to be a practice that a lot more Fortune 500 companies are also doing. Um, so that when we talked about it being a benefit for, you know, for businesses, well, there you go. Here's an organization or, or company that actually really sees that as. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mandy, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences you've had with immigrant and refugee students? Because I know you've gone and spent a lot of time with them. You're using all kinds of resources you've gathered. Can you tell us, a, just share a little bit about what that has been like? For me, the relationship I can develop with these students is literally life-changing. When I see uh, just the fire in their eyes, how much they want success, they understand what I take for granted so much more. And often these students have huge dreams. They are not afraid to dream big. So I think that has become really inspirational to me. And 
I can always think, you know, when I'm at the end of my rope and think, you know, I can't do it anymore, or maybe I'm not good enough for that. It's these teenagers who really just kind of change my attitude. I always see you trying to gather texts in different languages as a way to help teach. Has that been one of the best vehicles? Yeah, and I usually just use Amazon to start with, but I've yet to um, work with a student whose language I could not find in some text. And so often I give the student this text and they'll get tears in their eyes and say, I've never seen a book in my language before, or that, especially not since I've been here in the U.S. So I think it it's not just giving them that book to develop their literacy skills. It's so much more than that. And I also look for texts that will help them see their lived experiences in a book. So for a lot of immigrant and refugee youth, they experience family separation and then reunification. In fact, only 20% of youth come with their full um, nuclear family intact. So I think that's something that they're dealing with. Sometimes they come and join a father and stepmother who they've never known before. So that reunification can be difficult. So when they have a text about that, I think it's just a way to help them cope. Other students have experienced a lot of trauma and just being able to read about someone else's experience like yours can be helpful. You've also shared with me too, allowing them to read about people with similar experiences who have succeeded and had you know a lot of influence in the U.S. has been really powerful for them because they're able to identify with that and, and then project or see their own success as possible. Yeah, I think it's important that they realize that the American dream is for them as well. There's a, a graphic novel called The Arrival, which is, yeah. there's no, yeah, there's no words. It's really beautiful. And it's all about the immigrant experience going to the strange place. I, I highly recommend taking a look at that for anyone who, who wants to know more. Yeah, I've used that with high school students a lot, and it's wonderful because they understand that text a lot better than I do. So it's a way for them to share their experiences and them to be the one in the classroom that can shine instead of the, the teacher. What advice do you have for educators in better supporting refugees or immigrant youth? you can just follow some very simple steps. So one, learn their names and say their name correctly. It's very different in different cultures. What even constitutes a first name or last name or do those constructs even exist? I think they want to know about you. So share about yourself in the classroom and then just be patient and give them opportunities to share about them. I think the more we can learn about them, the better learn phrases in their language. And it's okay if you mess up and you, you can't say it right because I think they'll realize that you're a language learner as well. I, I often see that these students crave adult relationships. When I come and eat lunch with them or work with them in their class, um, they are so happy to see me because they want a relationship with someone who can help them navigate their new culture, their new school, their new country. So any way that you can just create that relationship with a student would just go a really long ways. And then I think the, the last thing and the most important thing is to take an asset perspective. So I always think when you know the student comes to my classroom and it's their first day in a, the school in the United States, do they get the attitude from me, I am so glad you're here, we've been waiting for you. So what can I do, what can I say, what can I, I do to create that um, atmosphere in the classroom with the other students there that it's taking an asset perspective of all they have rather than constantly viewing their needs. 
Those are all um, such great uh, ideas for approaching the situation. I appreciate it, Mandy. And I've really taken to heart to try to make sure I get my students' names correctly. And because I think there's always a fear of saying students' names. I think some teachers get nervous. And my simple solution was for me not to try to say it, but for them to say it um, and share it with me and then make sure that I get it right from that point going forward. So thank you for all the advice and everything you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Where can our listeners find you or your work online? I have a website, MaryAmandaStewart.com, where they can look and see um, some of the things I've published. I have a book coming out next month about teaching um, immigrant youth and just changing our perspective and how we do that in the classroom. And you can also find me on Twitter. Thank you. What is your Twitter address? It's drmandystewart, M-A-N-D-Y-S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Mandy does, has done a lot of incredible research, and we will be sure to share out your book um, once it comes out, so don't forget to remind us. Thanks again for joining us today, Mandy. We really hope to continue the discussion online. People can tweet Mandy some questions if they have any questions about this episode, and uh, we'll continue the conversation. Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative in education, go ahead and tweet us. We're at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. You can talk to us then. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Vision of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and really wherever you want. <laughs> and if you leave us a five-star review, it does help people find this podcast. So please do so. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs>